Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. Our text this morning, and in fact, for the next four Sundays leading up to Christmas, will come from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, if you're a Briton. Isaiah is a master painter of pictures and mental images. It's as if the great prophet is squinting his eyes, peering into the dark just before dawn, trying to discern where on the horizon the sun might rise. In order to communicate these mysteries, therefore, he deals in image, poetry, and metaphor. And I want to focus on a couple of these images this morning. If my sermon had a title, it would be, How to Prepare for the Coming Glory. How to Prepare for the Coming Glory. Isaiah, through the Spirit, teaches us that preparing means praying, desiring, and yielding. Praying, desiring, and yielding. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. In verse 1 of chapter 64, Isaiah pictures the heavens as a great curtain separating the world and its inhabitants from the immediate presence of God. He looks at the world around him, corrupted by sin, the people Israel in exile and shame, the crooked leaders in their power and pride who do not fear Yahweh. And finally, he throws his hands toward the heavens and cries out, Oh Lord, tear this curtain in two, the veil that keeps the world from seeing you. Shine the light of your face on this mess. Reveal yourself in power. The author G.K. Chesterton once said that he, he believed all the doctrines of the church, but he can only prove one of them. The only one that is empirically verifiable Namely, the doctrine of sin. Original or universal sin. It's all around us, isn't it? And don't forget, it's inside us too. But we have a natural response in our hearts that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. The world was created for more than this, and it must be fixed. And the very presence of this desire, I think, is itself evidence for God. Why else would we conceive of a different world? A world which God intended and will one day complete in the new creation. And this brings us to the first point then in how to prepare for the coming glory. It's not to bemoan the state of the world, but to do something about it. And first, namely, to pray. Notice that this first verse of Isaiah 64 is itself a prayer. It's an impassioned plea to the one who is capable of changing the world and the circumstances around us and capable of changing you and me. Amen? So likewise, when we reflect on our own lives, let us not either... One, throw up our hands in despair and give up. 
or two, put up our fists and fight under our own power, but raise our hands in prayer to the one for whom nothing is impossible. When the angel visited Mary and told her she would conceive by the Holy Spirit and bear the Messiah, she asked, I think in faith, how can this be so? Do you remember his response? For nothing will be impossible with God. That's what God does, the impossible. He makes the barren fruitful or the virgin fruitful, the desolate joyful, and the dead to rise. Therefore, we go to Him for our problems. That's the kind of God that we serve. So that's why we go to Him. In Paul's first letter to Timothy with the community there in conflict, he said, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Where do you go when you're in turmoil or need or want? Let prayer be your first response this Advent season. So preparing for the coming glory means praying, first of all, but it also means longing or desiring. If you have your Bibles, read Isaiah 64, verse 4 with me. I'll read it to you if you don't. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This Hebrew word for wait means to wait for, to tarry, and get this, to long for, to long for. In other words, to desire. A Christian philosopher who's done a lot of work recently and gotten some attention for it, his name's James K.A. Smith, has emphasized the role of the emotions, the affections, the deep desires of the heart in the process of making decisions and affecting change. And the Bible has taught this for a long time. Marketers have known this for a long time, but somehow it's become a, an aha moment for many people. For example, if you go into a large mall this month, which some of us may do or some of us may sit and choose to shop online instead. But if you go into a large mall this month for the experience maybe, you will encounter sights, sounds, and smells all meant to fill you with what? The desire to spend and spend, to make multiple purchases, to fill up your, your shopping cart. Most malls, if you can picture them in your mind, have some kind of open atrium at the front or possibly in the very middle with high ceilings, perhaps skylights and window, windows meant to usher you into the building, right? Meant to usher you into the very middle and into what feels like a sacred space. It's actually reminiscent, uh, many have noted this, of cathedral architecture. Next you will see what? Beautiful people plastered on billboards, airbrushed to perfection. You might catch a waft of an alluring perfume or cologne, or better yet, in my case, the sweet smell of sugar, cinnamon, and baking yeast at the local Cinnabon, right in the food court there, right? All of these things are meant to make us hungry to spend, 
and yet also satisfy our longing for something more, something transcendent. I'm so thankful that God knew this before the mall architects, that God appeals to our desires. Paul, quoting this passage in Isaiah, writes, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Do you hear the desire in there? How about the parables from Matthew? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, like a pearl of great price, like a great wedding banquet. The psalmist, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So what does it mean then to wait with desire, and how does that affect our everyday lives? Because that's what we're called to do, to desire, to long for the kingdom. Let's think about this in terms of the college football playoff. For you Georgia fans out there, I imagine that the next month won't feel much like waiting. It will be exciting and invigorating because you are anticipating something glorious, God willing. You see a future event is bringing joy into your life in the present. Even more so, were you sure of the final outcome? That's not a spoiler alert, but just reminding you that we don't know what will happen. Well, as Christians, we can be assured of the final victory. And this changes our life today. Look at verse 5 of that same chapter, 64. He or she who waits for him joyfully works righteousness. Maybe the next month, you Georgia fans, you can be kind and compassionate, but not patronizing, to your brothers and sisters who happen to be Georgia Tech fans. Maybe you can take your eyes off yourself and look to the needs of the world around you because you made it. Your team made it. And it says that God meets him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. God meets us in this waiting and in this working of righteousness. And let us remember this Advent as we prepare for the second coming of the Lord, that God has met us personally. He has entered in the flesh the veil. He has stepped through into our time and space. And he has conquered sin and evil and death definitively. Remember, on the cross, when Jesus offered himself once for all for sin and breathed his last, what does it say? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God did rend the heavens and has opened to us the way of union with him through the curtain of Christ's flesh. We wait for a sure salvation. Let us long for it this Advent. So we must pray and then wait with desire. Finally, number three, in how to prepare for the coming glory, we must yield and surrender to the will of the Father. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
Isaiah pictures faithful Israel as clay in the potter's hand. Now, clay that is brittle, hard, and set in its ways cannot be molded, is not pliable to the potter's hand. What can you do with it? It can only be broken, refired, and molded again. This image makes us wonder, makes me wonder, what kind of clay am I right now? Perhaps this morning the Father must break down a hard piece in your heart. I ask you to be open to that. We're going to pray the great litany soon, and there's ample opportunity to confess and repent and be made new. Be open to being made new by first being broken down, because that's how it happens. Just two chapters later, Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. But maybe this morning you are pliable to the potter's hand. You simply need to trust him. Trust is hard to teach or describe, isn't it? You have to experience it to learn it. Another author named David Benner imagines the life of faith like learning how to float in water for the first time. The more you flail and kick, the faster you sink. But if you breathe slowly, fill your lungs deeply and relax into the water, somehow a fluid actually holds your body up. It's amazing how God created this. And you float. In the same way, we must yield or surrender to the potter's hands in our lives. We must trust in his goodness and let him shape us and make us into the glory that is Christ's likeness. So I invite you to begin this season of Advent, this season of preparing for the coming glory by praying by longing and yielding, surrendering to the Father through Christ and by His Spirit. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence.